Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Maybe that's why Bluehost has been recommended by WordPress.org since 2005. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com wondersuite. That's bluehost.com wondersuite. This is System Trader Show, episode number eight. Welcome to System Trader Podcast. Listen to interviews with top traders and find out how the most successful traders beat the markets and what are the secrets of their success. This is System Trader Podcast with your host, Jack Lempart. Larry Connors has over three decades of experience in the financial markets industry and is widely regarded as one of the leading professionals, especially when it comes to systematic, quantified, short-term trading. He's the author of many highly acclaimed books, including How Markets Really Work and Short-Term Trading Strategies That Work. Larry co-wrote Street Smarts with Markets Wizard legend Linda Rashke. The Stocks and Commodities magazine selected this book as one of the classics for trading books written in the 20th century. Today we talk about his latest book, Buy the Fear, Sell the Greed, Seven Behavioral Quant Strategies for Traders, which proves that behavioral factor can be quantified and used on the markets. I strongly encourage you to listen to the whole episode as Larry is fully disclosing one of his strategies from the book, which is really very powerful and having a winning percentage of 90%. Enjoy the show. Hello, Larry. Hello, Jason. Uh, thank you very much for being here today on my show. Um, you are a very well-known person in the financial industry and author of many great books, could you please tell us here a bit more about yourself, especially from the perspective of your trading career? Um, sure. So I, I started trading um, a number of decades ago. I started trading on my own in college. Um, I basically um, worked a couple of jobs, had my own business there in college, was able to take some of the money and begin trading the markets, begin trading the penny stock markets back then. And shortly after um, leaving school, I went to work for Merrill Lynch back in 1982, um, spent 13 years um, in that on that side of the industry, I was on the sales side of the industry, and ultimately went off to um, trade for myself and also to, to build on a research firm beginning in 1994. And from there, we've, we've um, we built out the trading markets website, we published a number of books, including Street Smarts with Linda Rashke, and um, it's been a pretty, a pretty fun ride along the way. I, I came into the industry when the Dow was somewhere around 700. So that was many, um, many, many thousands, uh, many thousands of points ago. Wow, that's very interesting what you say. Thank you for that. So it sounds like you have like uh, almost four decades of, of, of uh, trading experience. Yes, that's correct. All right. Um, you have just published your latest book titled Buy the Fear, Sell the Grid, Seven Behavioral Quant Strategies for Traders. It's a great source for 
uh, for a discussion, which I believe may be very interesting to most traders. On its very first page, in fact, you reject the efficient market hypothesis that states that asset prices uh, fully reflect all available information. Before going into more specific details, could you please explain why many traders are psychologically unable to take trades in times which historically proved to be large urge, high probability trading opportunities? Yes, yes. And, and, and that's a great question because that's, that's the, the, the thesis of the book and, and um, the statistical backing of the book is that at, at certain times in certain market conditions, especially on a short-term basis, um, fear and greed will overwhelm um, the markets or the individual um, um, stocks themselves. And what happens is irrational behavior will, will occur. Um, this type of behavior that has occurred is, is essentially inherent in, in, in humans. This goes back um, centuries and centuries of time. It's hardwired in there. And what happens is there on a very short-term basis, prices will become prices will become mispriced. Edges, at least on a look-back basis, historically um, have provided edges that we see. We've been able to quantify this over and over again. Some of this um, we, we quantified a few decades ago. And as you move forward from the time that we initially did the quantification, you get to see the same behavior repeat itself over and over again. Fear will come into the marketplace. Prices will sell off. Um, the, the prices of the securities and, and, and um, whether they're markets or, or ETFs or individual stocks will become mispriced over a very short period of time. And then ultimately the fear subsides and when the fear subsides, the buying comes back in and prices go back and readjust to, to levels where they should be. And that, that's where the healthy edges are in place. Why people can't take, can't um, oftentimes can't um, pull the trigger during those times or take the trades during the times, there's a multitude of reasons. Um, n- number one, fear as a whole will tend to seize people's decision-making. Um, this is true. Um, this has been true throughout mankind. You could see this um, in the military. You could see this in business. You could see this in the markets. So that makes for a rational um, decision-making um, o- over a short-term period of time. N- number two, there are a lot of controls in place when we start looking at the bigger money that's out there. So when we start looking at, for example, um, institutional money or bank money, there are risk managers that are overseeing the trading desks. And what they're going to do is, even though there are going to be great opportunities for the traders to take advantage of um, the risk manager's job is to protect the organization. And what they're going to do is what they often do is they'll, they'll tend to shut those traders down. And those are opportunities that are usually missed. So the traders who are there and able to take advantage of them usually have the edges. And we, we've been able to show this now for, for, for many years. And, and now it's, it's come out to be decades for us to be able to show this on a statistical basis. Okay, great. Thank you very much for that, Larry. Very interesting. In your book, basically, you quantified mainly um, edges which are quantified, uh, let's say, uh, by um, driven by the behavioral factors. And does it mean that, in fact, there are times where such analytical tools like technical analysis or fundamental analysis, that there are times it just doesn't work, that the emotions are in the first place? Well, the emotions are, cr- are creating the edges. I used to believe that the technical factors were there. So you know, I, I come from a technical um, background, at least initially. Um, so the, the, the technicals, it, it used to be my original belief that the, the, the technicals created those edges. But in fact, it's, it's really 
the price itself um, is creating the edges, and the price is basically um, the prices are are um, or at least mispriced primarily due to um, behavioral factors, and especially when it comes time to fear. Um, fear is a, is a, is the strongest emotion out there. Fear tends to permeate along amongst a, um, a great deal of um, decision making, whether it's on a daily, weekly, or on a, even a lifetime basis. So when you, when fear comes into the marketplace, um, you will see prices tend to change. You will see behavior tend to change. And when behavior changes, it creates the mispricings, which can be taken advantage of. Thank you for that. Very often traders are asking themselves, including myself, um, how many uh, how markets are changing over time. Um, currently, we have very fast computers, high-speed internet connections, we have social media, we have high-frequency uh, high trading, we have uh, artificial intelligence. How all this influences the markets? Um, is our human nature also changing with the technology or the only changing factor is just timing? Well, the things that you mentioned here are all good points. Those are all structural changes in the marketplace, and structural changes have, are, have, have always taken place. Um, structural changes will continue to take place. What hasn't changed is human behavior. Human behavior, it's inherent. And you see where I open up the book. I open up the book with um, a quote from them, um, major Patton, but ultimately it was General George Patton, but when he wrote, wrote what he wrote, it was backed um, in, I believe it was in 1924, and he basically um, stated that the emotions felt by soldiers today, of the warriors today, the same emotions felt by the warriors centuries before. And that's true in, in, in when it comes to um, military, comes true, true to war, and it's true when it comes to trading. Those same emotions are in place. So all those structural things that you, that you just mentioned are true. What hasn't changed are the people behind it, the behavior of the people behind it. Does that make sense, Jason? Does that make sense? As, as I just yes, it does make sense. Definitely, it does. Yes. Um, um, do you think that then strategies based heavily, especially on fear, and also uh, on greed, but mostly, as you said, on fear, do you think that such strategies tend to be more robust than other? Because we often see how strategies degrade over time, and longevity often is an issue. So we may find some market edge, which then suddenly disappears once more and more traders notice uh, the same inefficiency. Do you think that if we have a strategy based on fear, um, such strategy may be more robust? Um, I do believe it, it, it is more robust. And, and part of that is, is because, as I pointed out in the book, some of the tests, um, some of the strategies in the book, we originally tested um, as much as a decade and a half ago. So we created those strategies, for example, a decade and a half before so that was on a look back basis we got a chance and to look forward over the next over the next 15 years and you could see that in some cases um in certain symbols the strategies actually got stronger during that period of time so even though they were published in, in the public domain as much as 15 years ago um the strategies continue to hold up in, in the testing um the the behavioral aspect is inherent and I don't believe, um, and again, this is just my opinion, but I don't believe the behavioral aspect is is ever going to change in, in humans. That that's that's where traders can come in and say, you know, based upon certain market conditions, when fear comes into the marketplace, can I take advantage of these situations? And Jessica, I, I do want to add one thing to here, and I pointed this out in the book: the the, the behavior 
when markets are in bull markets, and I define bull markets as being markets that are above the 200-day moving average, um, tends to be different than behavior below the 200-day moving average. So fear when the markets are rising, so again, above the 200-day moving average, tend to provide, at least historically, have tended to provide better opportunities when they've pulled back than when fear has come into the marketplace when it's below the 200-day moving average. So we, we definitely want to be able to identify what is the longer-term emotional place, what's the, what's the longer-term um, sentiment that's in place. We can do that with the 200-day. And then on a shorter-term basis, what we can do is use some of the indicators, for example, that um, simple indicators that I pointed out in the book that can allow you, um, allow traders to be, be able to pinpoint where their entries should be, where their exit should be, and then be able to look back many years, and in some case decades, what have been the historical results during these times. Okay, that sounds very interesting. It's very amazing that, as you say, although some rules are publicly known, uh, the edge is still there and it's not that it disappears over time. When you mention fear and greed, you often refer, at least in the book, to strategies predicting the short-term direction. Um, and as you mentioned also, uh, some strategies have a very high um, winning percentage. What about then long-term predictions? Can we also uh, use behavioral factors here? Um, the, the answer is yes. It's not. Uh, I don't cover this in the book, but I'll share it here in, in this podcast. Um, so what, what we see is two things, that on a short-term basis, prices tend to mean revert. Um, so let, let's say it's above the 200-day moving average. It becomes oversold. It will then tend to revert back. Um, you know, some, Sometimes it's referred to by the dips. But essentially what, what it's looking to do is on a short-term basis, we see mean reversion, and at least we, we've seen it for decades, mean reversion in equity prices. Um, that's an important point that I should stress out, that we see this in equity prices. We see it less so, for example, in commodities and currencies. Um, that same type of behavior, at least on a data-driven basis, is is um, has not been found in those markets. But when we look at equity prices, and especially, um, for example, in the United States, prices tend to mean revert. On a longer-term basis, prices tend to trend. And um, there's a gentleman out there who, who's now joined my research team by the name of Chris Kane. And Chris is going to be coming out with a book that basically uses the shows on a data-driven basis. He quantifies how behavioral factors influence prices on a longer-term basis where they tend to trend. There's a number of behavioral factors that come into that. And if people want to be able to at least get to follow Chris, you can follow. They can find Chris on LinkedIn. It's Chris Kane, C-A-I-N is, is how his last name is spelled. But he, I've, I've read some of his um, initial writings for his book that he has coming out, and it's pretty fascinating to see that um, he is able to show um, that, that be, uh, on a behavioral basis, longer term, that that hurting base, hurting factor, H-E-R-D-I-N-G, has a lot to do with prices moving up, trending, um, equity prices trending. And you really see it not only in equities, um, Chris shows it in bonds, he shows it in a number of other markets. It's pretty fascinating. So for everybody, to, just to, to, to baseline this and, and to start it, think on a short-term basis, mean reversion, and on a longer-term basis, think trend following. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely it does. Thank you very much for that. It's very interesting. I will put all the details on my website so everyone uh, can uh, go on my website and, and check it out. Do you think, Larry, that using quant fully systematic approach helps to profit from uh, market anomalies where fear and greed play the role? Um, 
Everyone heard about buying fear and selling greed, but we all know that it's very difficult. So therefore, that's why probably these edges are there. In other words, do you think that the discretionary trading approach is harder in terms of exploiting such events comparing to the algorithmic approach? Yes, it's it's absolutely harder. So um, I've worked with traders, um, including work with traders on a one-on-one basis for for, um, a number of decades now. And the, the, the thing that I, the number one thing that I, I see that's the hardest to do is to be able to execute trades when fear is at the greatest. Um, and you know, it, it's fascinating because I, I work with, I've worked with a number of traders, whether they range from professional traders, meaning that they were, um, on the floor of the exchanges and then they moved their operations, they expanded their operations upstairs all the way up to people who, um, moving all the way to people who were, um, traders that were looking to become full-time, they, they had corporate jobs and they were looking to become full-time traders. Um, the one thing I see in common, the hardest thing to do is to be able to go in um, when the markets are selling off and there's a whole bunch of noise out there and that noise is coming from the, from the news channels, it's coming from CNBC, it's coming from social media now, especially. It's very tough to be able to step in. So having a systematic approach where... Um, it's a, almost in a sense, if you could have someone take the trades for you, so you hire someone as a trader or your computer or your setup to, to be, be able to systematically execute so one doesn't have to physically make those trades. In my opinion, that's a large competitive edge because, again, most people really do have trouble taking those trades when the fear is at the greatest. I mean, we're all human. And having something systematic in place that basically sees the trade and takes the trade it is is a, is a large competitive edge versus everyone else. Yeah, that's very interesting. But on the other hand, one of the pitfalls of algorithmic trading is, as we know, overfitting data, especially now with uh, very powerful computers and uh, genetic programming, for example, and so on. Inexperienced traders tend to trade the data, as we say. So even if the underlying yeah. model is not logical, doesn't make any sense. Do you think that quantifying repeatable human behavior helps to avoid overfitting data? Well, I, 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 it's, 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 it's good that you said that, you know, trade the data. I actually, I think that I used that phrase with the Yes, before. yes, um, I, I took it from your book. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, I, I attend, I attended a, a wonderful conference here, here in New York City, um, earlier in the year. Um, it was called QuantCon and it's, it's put up by Quantopia. And it really is, if, if anyone gets, gets an opportunity, people coming from around the world to attend it, they have wonderful speakers. And you, you see the makeup of the people that, that attended that. Um, a lot of them with heavy duty data experience and whether they had degrees, um, in one in engineering or in any of the sciences or, or any of the data sciences, um, in some of them had, um, master's degrees and PhDs and you could see this trade the data mentality. I can very much see that, um, trading the data is, um, depending upon how that data is, is, it, it's oftentimes does not work. And, you know, you could see it especially this year, a lot of quant funds are having a lot of difficulty this year. They had, had a lot of difficulty in, in October um, because they were, they were, you know, some, in some cases they were trading the data. And some of these, you know, major funds had double-digit drawdowns for the month, which, which is pretty horrendous um, if you think about it. The, um, when we start looking at things, number one, I want to try to understand before I'll put a strategy, I, I take the approach to saying, okay, what is going on here with the market? Why is this going on? What is, what is the inherent edge that's going in, into place? And then how can I best construct the strategy and ultimately construct it within a portfolio that if I'm wrong, 
it will um, take the. It, it, it's not not going to potentially um, take the account and bring it down double digits. It may it may may cause um, a drawdown, but keeping that risk contained. Um, what happens with with the trade the data is if one doesn't quite understand what is the behavioral aspects behind it, why are these edges exist? Why do these edges exist? Um, what ultimately I, I've seen this over and over again. It, 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 they tend to blow up. These things just stop stop working, and that's simply because they they overfit the data um, or curve fit the data and did things within the data. Um, one of the rules that maybe everybody can then apply is basically we like to see things with the least amount of rules possible, and you can see that throughout the book. Um, in the in the seven strategies that are in the book, majority of the strategies, are, in fact, all the strategies, only have a small handful of rules. And you can understand the reason behind the rules. There's behavioral reasons and aspects behind the rules, supported by the historical test results. Warren Buffett is known saying, "Be fearful when others are greedy, and greedy when others are fearful." And we know also from your research that it can be statistically proven. And in fact, you are proving this in your in your book. But on yes. the other hand, we have approach to trading like long-term trend following, where Basically, we buy the strength uh, when the market is going up. We are buying the strength, and we are selling when the market is going down. We 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 sell the weakness of the market. Yes, but this yes. seems to be a an opposite idea to what Warren Buffett says. But still, it seems to be working. Yep. So it, it goes back to what we, we were we were talking about a little a little bit earlier that on, on a shorter term basis, at least what we've been able to to, to show. Is that, um, that that's where fear and greed comes into place on a shorter term basis. On a longer term basis, it, it tends to be hurting, which which will ultimately um, lead itself to, to trend following. Whether it's whether one is using momentum or absolute momentum or any of the different ways to measure measure that trending. Um, what what Buffett um, has done, which very few very few people have been able to, to replicate. Is you know there's multiple pieces to how he goes about doing these things. It's number one, he's looking at panics. Oftentimes, look, looking at panics. He certainly did that in, at the end of 2008, early 2009, um, with the two of his investments. He was able to make one of them being in Goldman Sachs. N- number two, he's constructing his positions, and this is an important point because people don't spend enough time on this. Um, and this is something that if if, if people are looking to to grow in any one part of the, their um, trading um, business and in their investing business, that the portfolio construction and construction of a trade is as important and possibly even more important than the strategy itself. And I'll, I'll explain what this means. So when you take a look at how Buffett puts positions on, um, what he's often doing is he is constructing the positions in such a way that he's risking a fixed amount in order to make a much greater amount. Okay. And maybe we can talk about this a little bit further about what was done, for example, in the housing crisis of 2008 here in the United States with, with the, with the bear market. Is it okay if we spend a few minutes on this? Because I think this will help everyone. Yes, yeah, sure. Of course. Go ahead. please. So if you look at, at the people who made um, tremendous sums of money. And in some cases, um, for example, John Paulson's case, he, he, he became, um, a, became a multi-billionaire in there. What they were doing is they were making a bet that that there was going to be a housing crisis, which was ultimately going to lead to a crash in housing prices. Um, 
and, and ultimately crushing in the entire credit system. They were right. They were constructing trades, though, in, in some cases, um, they were constructing trades as early as 2004. And they were wrong. In, in many cases, they were wrong. They were just too early. So they were doing 2004, 2005, 2006. You know, they saw what was going on, but it kept the, kept the current. What they were able to do was they were able to stay in the game by constructing positions in such a way where they would risk a little in order to make a lot. Okay. Options is one way to do that. And then going into some advanced um, construction on um, portfolio construction are, are, are additional ways to be able to do that. That's beyond the scope of this podcast. But as, as you could see, what they did was they were able to construct positions in such a way that when they were right, they were able to make tens and hundreds. In some cases, it was thousands and tens and thousands of times their original investment when the entire um, system collapsed. That's what one wants to be able to do with all this. Being Buffett is probably the king of being able to do that. But there are a lot of people, especially um, people who have done it on the short side, who have constructed positions in such a way that if markets moved, as they predicted, they were able to risk a little in order to make a lot. One of the best ways to be able to do that is obviously with the option markets and derivative markets, but options especially are, are, are a way to be able to do that. Okay. So again, in looking at, at Buffett, it's not just simply making a, a market call. It also goes into the way he constructs his position and the way he constructs his portfolio. Okay. Very, very interesting. Thank you for that. Um, excuse me if I ask uh, too much now, but um, in your book, you present uh, seven strategies. Would it be possible, could you please disclose to my listeners for the good start, let's say, just one strategy, maybe some simple uh, strategy, just to um, so they could feel how, uh, how, what is it about, and if you could describe it also a bit. Sure, sure. So, um, when, whenever I whenever I write a book, I tend to um, I tend to open the book with my favorite strategy. So it's um, it, you know a lot a lot of authors will will, will tend to do that. So the, I, I did this intentionally. I, I opened the book um, at, at, after the first chapter. I opened the first strategy of the open up the book with the first strategy with the RSI power zones, and it's a very simple strategy. And I did this for a couple of reasons. Um, Number one, as you can see, the historical test results are extremely high. And number two, um, these test results, that original strategy was created many, many years ago. And we've gotten the opportunity to, and we bring the reader in there, the opportunity to basically look forward from the time we originally published it to be able to see over the next decade and a half how, how it performed in the test results. And the RSI power zones can be used in um, most equity ETFs from around the globe. And it's a simple strategy. You're simply just waiting using a shorter-term RSI. In the book, I use it as a four-period RSI, but you can use it as a, a two-period RSI, three-period RSI, four-period RSI. But a four-period RSI reading under 30, when the market or, or when that ETF it, um, is above its 200-day moving average, okay? Four-period RSI goes under 30. If you're looking to, to buy a unit, and then if prices go lower anytime you're in the position, um, you double up on that position. And then the exit is just simply waiting for the four-period RSI to, to, to move higher. Um, and we can use different levels. We can use 50, 55. You can go all the way up to 70 if you're looking to be a um, longer term, a little bit longer term. But what you see is that that four-period RSI, when it's above the 200-day, does a wonderful job of being able to identify when there's fear in the marketplace. And it doesn't mean, to, it doesn't mean that there's necessarily a great amount of fear, but this fear... And this angst, 
And what angst means is just simply that if we know, for example, meaning if the market knows that there's going to be a big announcement coming, let's say it's a presidential election, let's say it's uh, a Federal Reserve making the, a decision on interest rates, um, it, w- whether it's any type of event that's out there, it doesn't necessarily mean that selling is going to occur. What, what it can also mean is just the buying will dry up for a short period of time. Essentially, the buyers are going to say, you know what, I'm going to wait until this event passes before I enter, enter the market. So that lack of buying is causing prices. The selling, the natural selling will come in that's not being supported by buying. Okay, they're waiting for that event to, 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 to pass. So the buyers will stand aside. The RSI will come in there below 30. It may go a little bit longer. And then ultimately that event will pass or the fear will lessen and prices historically have um, reverted back and moved higher. And as, as I show with, with SPY, we're looking back multiple decades with SPY, um, and in the historical test results, you could see it was pricing 90% of the time within anywhere from between three to seven days, prices were higher. And that's really high percentage trading. Again, we were able to show that um, a decade and a half ago, and we're continually, we're still able to continue to show that as of today. Yeah, that's very, very amazing that basically over 90% of the, of this, of the trades are winning. And also, just one more thing: there is no stop loss used, right? Yeah. So again, um, th- that's you know that that's an in- interesting point, and it's something that um, h- has created a lot of discussion that's out there. Um, we when we run certain tests and things in there, um, we will show we will show sh- certain strategies with stops and without stops. We have, for example, different strategies that t- have profit targets and stops in place. So it's either going to hit the profit target or it's going to hit the stop, one or the other. Um, but what we've seen overall on a, on a mean reversion basis, on a short-term basis, is that when you take these same strategies, for example, and put stops in place, and we, we actually were in tests, I showed this in, in a previous book, short-term trading strategies that work, that when stops go put, get placed in, and we were using um, stops that would be a couple of percent away, and then we went up to 10%, 20%. And we even showed stops being 50% away on an ETF, which is crazy because um, stops are 50% away. It, it, it's somewhat, you know, that, that's an extreme level. Even stops are 50% away lessened the test results, okay? And what that eventually leads to is what type of um, risk management comes into place. The risk management can come into place. It can be done with options. Risk management can be come into place with position size. It basically is that... Um, Stops are there. Um, they do potentially play a role. But with that being being said, one has to understand that on the other side of the stops is getting stopped out a number of times accumulates losses. It's just getting nicked. So that's, it's getting nicked by a raise. It gets cut, 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 cut. And those losses tend to add up over time. Um, again, um, the stops do have a place in certain strategies. But as you see with the test results on a mean reversion basis, um, position sizing and potentially moving over options may be better ways to be able to to protect the overall um, positions. Yeah, thank you very much for that, Larry. By the way, for those who are interested about more details, you are also offering the code written in AMI Broker uh, AFL code. So, so it's available. Basically, if someone is really interested and doesn't know too much about programming, everything is uh, prepared by you, so it can be also. Uh, reachable. I will put all the details on my website so whoever is interested can just uh, check it there. We're reaching to the end of this interview, Larry. 
Is there anything you'd like to add before we end today? Yes. Well, first, thank, thank you, Jason, for having me here today. Very much appreciate it. I always enjoy, always enjoy your podcast. It's one, one of the one of the best out there um, for traders. Um, if anyone wants to reach me, they can reach me. My email address is lconnors, L-C-O-N-N-O-R-S, at cg3.com. Um, I also have information on my tradingmarkets.com website. They can also, um, if they're interested in reading, if anyone's interested in buy the fear, sell the greed, um, it's available um, directly from the trading markets website. You can just go on there and it will bring you over there. Um, it's also available on Amazon.com. But if you bring it directly to the trading markets website, um, what will happen is you can also get access. You'll get automatic access. I have a, um, it's called the Connors Research Traders Journal. So I put out um, our new research on a, on a timely basis. So if anyone wants to be um, kept updated, and there's no cost to that, if anyone wants to be kept updated on that, um, they'll automatically get that if they purchase by the fair self agreed on the Trading Markets website. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here today with me, Larry, and uh, sharing with us so many valuable knowledge. Um, I'm sure that listeners of the podcast appreciate it very much. I wish you all the best, Larry. Bye-bye. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Larry. If you want to learn more, I highly recommend his latest book, Buy the Fear, Sell the Greed, as it's not only exciting reading, but also very practical and can improve your trading. I encourage you to visit my website at systemtrader.show slash 008, where you can find notes to this episode. For now, that's all from my side. I wish you all the best and happy trading. Bye-bye. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.